You know, I think it's uh, pretty true for people who are uh, children of the uh, 80s and 90s um, when, uh, you know, people still uh, regularly had cable television, um, you know, like HBO or Showtime or whatever. You guys know what cable television is. Um, You know, kind of a different situation than streaming is now where, like, you know, cable television would have uh, sometimes the same movies, you know, that would show over and over and over again. And as a result, sometimes you... Uh, watched a lot of movies from, uh, to quote Silicon Valley, from the from the middle out, as it were. You 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 kind of jumped in in the middle. Uh, sometimes you learned who the good guys or bad guys were while you were watching the movie, um, and uh, you know, like you you grew to like love movies and say, you know, like oh, this is my favorite movie. So and so is my favorite movie. I don't know why. And and a lot of times it was a movie that like critics didn't like, and you're always perplexed by that. Like what, man? Why didn't the critics like this movie that I really like? And then. You know, you meet somebody, um, you know, who's never seen that movie, uh, maybe because they're, you know, younger than you or whatever. And you're like, oh, we got to see this movie. I love this movie when I was a kid. Let's watch this. And then you go to, uh, you know, a streaming service like Movie Spree or, you know, a video store if it's, uh, you know, not 2019. And, uh, you know, you, you uh, turn on the movie for the first time and then you realize, oh, man, this movie that I love... I've never seen the first 10 minutes of the movie. And then you realize, oh, <laughs> this is this is where all the racism is <laughs> in the first 10 minutes. I, I, I now get why critics didn't like this movie. Uh, welcome to Knife Drop, episode six. I've recorded a bunch of different segments, mini podcasts, if you will, all revolving around film, TV, and other entertainment and fun stuff. Every episode will have three of these segments, and you might never know which. I'm your host, Rob Matsushita, and welcome to The Knife Drop. The Knife Drop is brought to you by Mill Creek Entertainment and the Movie Spree Streaming Network. Coming up, we've got part two of the Christopher Chen tapes, another visit with our old pal Big Slim, where he's got another movie we've never heard of. But first, here's a new segment where we discuss something from the Mill Creek Library. Everybody, this is, uh, I don't even know if we have a name for this uh, segment coming up. I guess it's more of a Rob Recommends uh, kind of thing. Something from the Mill Creek catalog. And uh, I was looking through on the Mill Creek catalog today, and I noticed that one of my favorite movies is on it, which is uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Uh, a movie that I feel like, I feel like everybody is more or less in agreement that this is a good movie. But I just also don't feel like it gets as much play as, as, uh, as it should. Uh, it's really under the radar. Yeah. It, it, it's not one you hear talked about a whole lot. No. But everyone seems to have really great memories of it. Yeah. And uh, I, my theory for that is just I, I do feel like there may have been some effort on some movie production company's uh, part to make sure that uh, uh, this didn't get seen too much because it does make a lot of musical biopics irrelevant. Yes. Uh, if not just straight up ridiculous we hadn't even gotten uh was a rocket man uh or uh, um uh bohemian rhapsody yet right that you was know. that was just these last two years but right then. you know um you know or anything like that i i heard those movies are good but um i don't know it, it, that's the thing is this movie did kind of ruin musical biopics for me for those of you who don't know uh walk hard is a fake biopic about a not real musician named dewey cox uh, played by john c Riley. played brilliantly by john c Riley. uh 
in an opening where, as you've probably seen in the previews... Give him a minute, son. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. <laughs> There's a lot of very quotable lines, but the re- one of the reasons why uh, I'm talking about this uh, with my friend Buck is we were sitting here, we're on uh, Terror Tuesday, and Buck revealed to me... You're in this movie. I was in Walk Hard. I, I was working as an extra at the time. Right. It was one of the big concert scenes, mm-hmm. and they filmed it in a big theater on the USC campus, and uh, you can't see me at all because mm-hmm. the it, it's a humongous theater, right. and there, there were about 100 of us, and they tiled us, right. or they tessered, tesserated us, yeah. which is, uh, they had like 100 of us sitting in one section of the audience, and they filmed us. And then they had us all move over a section, mm-hmm. and and they digitally composited it all together to make it look like the entire theater was full of people, um, when it was really just a hundred people photographed over and over again, mm. and and when they do that, they obviously blur out all the faces so you can't see that it's the same hundred people. Right, right. Because the whole movie basically leads up to Dewey Cox has to come up with the ultimate song that sums up his whole career. Um, I mean, the, the movie hits a lot of the a, a lot of the very specific points of uh, that these biopics always walk hit. The line, Ray especially. walk the line, especially, you know. But I mean, like Coal Miner's Daughter. There's a little bit of that here. Oh, although, yeah. oh, although yeah. I feel like Coal Miner's Daughter is kind of an outlier in that, like it kind of doesn't do a lot of the things. That yeah, eventually this become this was cliche. specifically those those biopics in the yeah '90s and early 2000s where, and and you know, Joaquin Phoenix kind of got cheated, I thought, because mm. I think. Because Reese Witherspoon deservedly won Best Actress for playing June Carter Cash. And Joaquin Phoenix probably would have won as Johnny Cash because he did a really great job portraying Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. Except that Jamie Foxx had just won Best Actor the year before for the exact same movie playing Ray Charles. The exact same movie. Yeah. And <laughs> and that's really kind of what Walk Hard is sort of making fun of. Oh, exactly. Is that, you know, all musicals about musicians a lot of it is going to be the music. I was recently listening to the soundtrack of this again. Oh, yeah? And it's worth just listening to the soundtrack because sometimes you could... There's a lot of jokes that you kind of miss because they're kind of playing, you know, oh, yeah, you know dialogue, yeah. whatever. Because the songs are very... Not just very well written, but also very funny as well. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, part of the other running gag of the movie is how, like... Some of the characters, some of the, you know, like, as uh, as per usual in movies like this, uh, it's all about who the celebrity that the movie is about uh, runs it, what other celebrities they right, run into, and right. what celebrities are playing those celebrities. And uh, one of my favorite scenes in it is is the scene where it's the Beatles, and it's like they're all, I don't know if it's that they're perfectly cast or they're hilariously, she, badly, hilariously cast. badly cast. Uh, Jack Black is one of them? Oh, uh, yeah. Jack, Jack Black is Paul McCartney. The Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> um, and, Are uh, any of them actually British? The, no, that's not a single one of them. I was going to say. I think the only one who had Jason a back... Jason Schwartzman? Is Jason Schwartzman, who was, I think, the only one in the group who had a back pocket impression of Ringo Starr ready to go. Because apparently he's a big fan <laughs> okay. of Ringo Starr. Well, aren't we all? Yeah. I mean, we all love Ringo. Yeah. I, I think for some reason the, the line that made me laugh the most is I love overtly like i love jokes that make fun of exposition specifically when the guru says to him beetles please stop fighting here in india (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, it's such a good movie. And uh, to this day, um, there's an actor in the film that I only refer to as the wrong kid died. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which we had been, which we had been talking dad that just couldn't get over that the wrong kid died. Yeah. Only, only my, in Ray, Raymond J. Berry is the actor's name. My, my favorite scene is, is where Dewey basically invents rock and roll. <laughs> and he... Yeah, he's in in front of an audience of these very well scrubbed, presentable young mm-hmm. people, and and he's playing this rather innocuous kind of rockabilly early Elvis song, and the girls immediately jump up and start taking off their tops <laughs> and and dancing in their underwear, and the the boys start start smashing chairs and and becoming rebellious, and 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 he has single handedly invented the youth revolution. Yeah, my favorite, one of my favorite things, it's got all the great cliches that you always love in movies like this, like the, you know, watch me for the changes bit. Right, <laughs> Dewey, right. we've never heard this song before. Um, which I, you Just know, follow along. Yeah. yeah. Which actually, friends of mine who are like professional musicians have said, it is possible to do that, but maybe not to the degree that they mm. they make fun of in the film. I love when the scene where he is recording That's Amore for John Michael Higgins. <laughs> Just before they do that song, and John Michael Higgins, like I, I, having like it related to the women immediately ripping their tops off, oh, yeah, rock yeah. and roll for the first time. There's also the no one will ever be as disgusted with a rendition of that's amore more than John Michael Higgins is <laughs> in that scene, like because I think he even says it's like you know what you have done to not just me, but the Italian people. <laughs> And the the way uh, the way song inspirations come out of nowhere that mm. that somebody mentions oh well you better walk hard yeah mm. walk, walk hard. hard yeah mm. which which that happens in Bohemian Rhapsody yeah oh yeah like um, yeah uh, and and I mean it happens in every musical biopic where like they feel the need of showing us the invention of the uh, uh, of the thing. Oh, I'd- I personally really enjoyed Rocket Man because yeah. because they they threw chronological accuracy out the window. Yeah, I've heard they that. They just treated it like a jukebox musical and used whatever Elton John song they happened to feel like using for any given moment. Yeah, I've no heard no matter where it fell during his career. And I have heard that that has actually to the movie's credit. Oh yeah, just, that absolutely. They just go for it's, they just go for entertainment because Elton is uh, narrating the whole thing and he's the world's most unreliable mythologizing narrator. Right. So it, it's all. It's all fantasy sequences, even the stuff that really happened. Yeah. Something else that happens in Walk Hard that I feel the need to mention is this may seem it may seem like a crazy non sequitur um, or specifically referring to like one of the other movies. But at one point during the 1970s sequences, Dewey Cox is revealed to have a variety show with sketches oh, and, oh yeah and musical numbers oh, of songs disco number yeah yeah, on, yeah. on roller skates right yeah of songs that he has no business singing and. Something I was just recently saying to my wife this uh, uh, this past Halloween because we were watching um, uh, the Paul Lynn Halloween special. Oh which my is, god! Yes, I just saw that recently too. Yes, and um, you know it's kind of painful. Yeah. yeah, and I was saying to her, it's like you have no idea. Everybody had one of these specials in the seventies. Oh 70s. yeah, yeah. They were everywhere in the seventies. Star Wars. I mean, like everybody's like. Susan Anton had her own special. Right. Season when people Susan. when people like to rip on on um, the Star Wars holiday special, and rightfully so, it's not good. But the thing is, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But that's the thing is, like, 
why single that one out? Like they were all bad. Like all, yeah. like all of their shows some were really terrible. Really bad variety shows. Out oh there yeah. The top. And I watched every <coughs> damn one of them. I used to watch the Sunny oh, and Cher oh, show. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I my watched... sister and I were heavily into Donnie and Marie. Yeah. The, the, the Sunny and Cher's jokes kind of went over our head for the yeah. most part. But I that... watched. Yeah, I watched Sunny and Cher. I watched Donnie and Marie. I watched Dinah. Exclamation oh, point. Oh yeah, yeah. Her daytime uh, show. Yeah, I. She wa- was basically doing Ellen and Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. It was the it was the good feeling variety show, right? Like, you know, I watched uh, the the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle, yeah, uh, Razzle Dazzle and show, Bonkers, which I think was their Saturday morning show. Yeah, and um, uh, uh, what you can look up. By the way, these are all on YouTube. Um, but I mean, the thing is, like Dewey, Co- the the Dewey Cox, or I think it's like just called the Dewey Cox Show or something like that. Something like yeah, so, yeah that that he's on. It's just accurate like it's like yeah, the thing is like yeah. it's not over they're the top all on it roller is... skates they're all in kind of bob mackie costumes right and, uh... it's accurate and yeah. that's that's one of the things that's so great about this movie is that some things are over the top and sometimes there's a level of like accuracy both to oh, yeah. what it's making oh, yeah. fun of but also what it's doing straight up like you know and it's it is not just really really funny but there's an eye to detail Oh, absolutely. That yeah. I really do feel like there, there's a real love for the movies that they're making fun of. Right. And and they're they're as you say, they're getting the period details absolutely right. Yeah. So at any rate, yeah, Walk Hard um is available uh through Mill Creek. It's not I don't believe it's on the movie spree streaming service, but you can purchase uh the Blu ray through uh through Mill Creek Entertainment. And please do. Uh, it is, if you've never seen it, it is a terrific movie and you're, you're going to want to own it cause the music's just oh, yeah. great and everybody is super duper terrific in it. Um, and you know, like if you want to see Paul Rudd doing the most obnoxious British accent oh, ever. Oh yeah. Paul Rudd is one of Paul them. Is Rudd, he John Lennon? He's John Lennon. Paul Rudd, Paul Rudd plays, uh, plays John Lennon. Oh, so good. Um, at any rate. That is, um, I guess, Rob recommends, and Buck reveals that he's in another movie that we're not <laughs> talking about. It's this is this is where we're. I'm gonna... not in every movie. No, no, I, I you're swear not. I'm not. You're but... no big slim McGroovy. I'm. Um, <laughs> and, but I was in Rush Hour Three. You were in Rush Hour Three. Yeah, I was an extra in Rush Hour Three. Can you be spotted in Rush Hour Three? I don't know. I've never seen the movie. Yeah, I mean, I've never actually seen it. I didn't want to pay to see it. No one but, has. No one has ever. But seen if it I am there, I'm. Uh, there's a there's a scene early on where Chris Tucker is directing traffic, mm-hmm. and he's listening to music on headphones, and he starts dancing uh, to the beat, and and inadvertently causes lots of car crashes. Uh-huh. And I'm one of the pedestrians in the in the crossroads or in the in the intersection while all that is happening. Oh. So you're yeah. So you're inconvenienced by Chris Tucker. Yes, just like all of us. Just like all of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is funny because there's another movie that's available through Mill Creek, uh, True Believer, which I really love. And um, no, I'm not in it. But the I'm not guy in who, it either. Just, just yeah. for the record. Um, but the guy who gets shot at the beginning of it. Uh, looks exactly like I looked at the age I was when I saw the movie. <laughs> a fact that all so of that my must friends have you enjoyed. Out. Oh yeah, maybe I'll talk about True Believer next because that's a really good movie. At any rate, uh, that's uh, that's Walk Hard: The Dewey Cox Story. Please pick it up from Mill Creek Entertainment. Back in episode three, I started an interview with my Hollywood doppelganger, where we discussed the trope of the Asian American coroner. And this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about dealing with stereotypes in the entertainment industry. So here's part two of the Christopher Chen tapes. 
We were talking a little bit about why we think that, that certain Asian American, why, why the Asian American male often gets put as the coroner. And, and, and this, is, this is where, uh, you know, we're going to, we might be, we might be getting into a little bit of sensitive issues here. Um, but part of, I think that there's sometimes I think um, a, a more sinister reason, I don't know, like, sinister isn't the right word, but there's no real delicate way to put this. It's a weird way of kind of sidelining an Asian character into not mm-hmm. really doing anything interesting Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in that, like, you know, they get to like talk about what happened, but you know, like you don't, you don't see, you know, you don't typically see an Asian American, like, unless, unless they're like, say Jackie Chan, um, you know, like unless, uh, you know, it, it, that, that's the thing is you don't see an Asian American usually be the cop on the edge, you know, who, uh, you know, who's, who's going to break this case if it, if it kills everybody in South Los Angeles. You know, right. Like, we don't you know. we don't get to be the hero or the anti-hero. No. You know? No. Yeah. We're usually just the guy who like like um oh man, I feel like one of the worst rep- one of the one of the worst ones of this is in the movie New Jack City where they have I think it's Russell Wong is like the mm-hmm. one Asian American member of their team and like he goes out like with a high-pitched scream. He just gets stabbed. And I'm like, "Oh, I kind of thought he'd get to do something cool. He looks awesome in the long mm-hmm. coat." You know, but no, mm-hmm. he doesn't doesn't really get to doesn't really get to do anything. Um, I, I I kind of hope that that's changing a bit. I I feel like we really hit we hit a moment. I mentioned Crazy Rich Asians and earlier, and it's important to note that like Crazy Rich Asians and Searching, like came out like I think within a week of each other, mm-hmm. and and my cup raneth over. Um, you know, as, as far as that goes, it's like, oh, it's so cool that the, the thing I love the most about searching is that there is no reason why John Cho's character has to be Asian. Um, he just happens to be. Right. You know? And, right. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, and they don't just, and they, but they also don't pretend that he isn't. And as a result, everybody in his family is also Asian mm-hmm. and they don't pretend they're not. Um, right. You know, I, I think that that's I think that that's wonderful, and uh, it just you know, which also leads me to a thing that I say literally every time I see. Oh, there's my dog screaming at me. Um, literally every time I see John Cho in anything, I always am like, why hasn't he become like a giant movie star yet? Why isn't he at Clooney level? Mm-hmm. You, know, like, what? you know, and and I I don't want to get too cynical about this, but I frequently wonder if that has to do with the fact that, you know, again, is it just that we don't want there to be an Asian American movie star? Um, is it just that we don't, is, is it just that people just can't believe that that is a thing that could exist? That's, that's an ongoing question that um, people who've examined it, even not just even recently, mm-hmm. but like every time the subjects come up over the decades, that why is it? Why do they not want one or not ready for one? And also interjecting when you were talking about John Show and Crazy Rich Asians and, and that he his character didn't have to be Asian, but it happened to be, so they made it. When I, I saw Crazy Rich Asians three times in the theaters, um, ironically, the first two times I saw it with a sold-out audience of 
just happened to be where the theater I was at with really old Jewish people. And hmm. I laughed at things that they were not laughing at. Hmm. Um, I wanted to see one. They had some screenings because there's a big, huge uh, Asian, not just Chinese, but uh, all kinds, uh, all different uh, groups of Asian actors and writers and uh, producers and uh, and just people who love entertainment that did have their special screenings. But my point is, the third time I saw it, I found myself weeping at a place where it's like, why am I crying here? And it was just mm. after the 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 four the two couples, the one who's going to get married, and the one the leads that are coming in for the marriage. They're just they're, they're having fun in Singapore, having been at a, a you know street fair food market, and then just riding around in their jeep. And I'm like, I was weeping because when do we get to see Asians just doing regular stuff? Right. Just regular stuff. They're they're sitting there. They just had their bellies full, and now they're riding back to their hotel room with their balloons, and they're in a Jeep, and I just started crying. And mm. we, we never get to see them just doing regular stuff, just hanging out, just being themselves. We either have to, you know, we uh, I started crying recently the, the, uh, at a, uh, a stage show. It was amazing, called Crazy Talented Asians. I was going to ask you about this. I saw you post about this on Facebook. Yeah, and I'll tell you more in a little bit, but just one specific moment where they had, well, they had two really ridiculous moments, and there's so much talent here in L.A. and spread all over the country and the world, but there was four former Kims in Miss Saigon Broadway who are now moms of kids, so they Hmm. call themselves Mama Bears. You know, and as a group, the quartet. So I've seen them perform, but they also had, they had four young singer, uh, female, Asian female singers from Disneyland who all play Mulan in this one uh, live singing stage show at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Like there's four, there's four Mulans right there. In the middle of their little parody song, they were singing. Um, they were talking about how you know the one girl was singing about how she can only look forward to singing to playing. Uh, like a prostitute on on Broadway, mm. meaning like Miss Saigon, right? And then it interjected the four, three other girls saying, "Please bring honor to us. Please bring honor to us." You know, from the uh, from Mulan, and I just start crying because of that's what they're probably limited to being these yeah. talented, gorgeous Asian females in musical theater. You are going to get to play. Maybe when you get a little, you know, a little lucky in a revival of Miss Saigon or at Mulan, you're just going to sing that line over and over again for as many years as you can play it. It's like, well, if there's a stage version of Mulan, you get to do it. And it's like it's so, it's just so limiting, you know, about yeah. what they can play in theater with all the talent and, and beauty they have. That's all they get. And yeah. I just started weeping in the middle of the number, even though it was done comically. It wasn't. Right. It was done ironically and like you know, laughing at it. Most people are laughing, and I laughed too. But then tears were streaming as well of how um, sad a situation they were actually in. Yeah, because so. that stuff hits you, man. Like that—that that is a thing where, like, you know, I mean, I got and I've—I have been so up in arms about um, about casting a white actor as Iron Fist. Um, when this could have really been a course correction moment on Marvel's part, and uh, right. and as, especially considering they had um, oh, what is his name? I want to say Simon Tom, like in the wings. They they put him in another episode, and he was like the runner up. And just for some reason, they just chickened out. Um, you know, and and don't add me anybody with uh, he was white in the comic books. I don't care. The only reason he was white 
in the comic books is because Marvel already had an Asian American superhero, Shang-Chi, and they're making that movie next year. Um, and they didn't want to confuse the audience by having more than one Asian American. It, it is, it is, a, it's like this, this, this joke that I've been saying during the course of our conversation that I, I'm kidding, but I'm not of like, it, sometimes it feels like you only get one in a movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you get one and that's it. You know, hope you enjoyed, hope you enjoyed your Asian um, you know. yeah, yeah, no, there, that, that's, uh, that, that happens so much, you know, mm-hmm. we can get it more into it with, with the next segment about representation, but right. on a, on a side note, when you're talking about crazy restrictions and the massive success that was right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, we hope and think that things will change. There's an article we can search for it. I saw the headline. I, I didn't read it because I was too scared to read it. I think it just came out today or yesterday mm-hmm. about, Crazy Rich Asians, and I guess the headline is, did anything really change after that? Okay, mm-hmm. and um, it's on, on one of the, I think one of those uh, pop culture sites or or um, uh, similar to BuzzFeed or uh, maybe one of the entertainment sites like Variety or Deadline or something. But anyway, I will see when I get the courage, I will go and seek it out to read it. Mm-hmm. But here's on a side note, pilot season just hap- uh, just completed here in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few weeks ago, right? And the upfronts just happened, right? To announce the fall right. seasons. Okay. So, yes, they renewed Fresh Off the Boat uh, yes. for a sixth season. But <laughs> there were two other very high-profile pilots uh, done for the networks. One, I think, for CBS. One for ABC. One was um, was being, you know, uh, a vehicle for Ken, Dr. Ken oh, Young. Yeah. It's yeah. called Malibu, uh, uh, Emperor of Malibu. And you can go on Deadline. You can read all about it. Deadline.com. Hmm. You don't need a um, you don't need a uh, an account or anything. It's just public knowledge. You can follow, see what that cast says, what the premise was. So Emperor of Malibu, hmm. it did not get picked up for a series. Okay. Hmm. Then there's another super high profile one. It was it didn't even have a title. It was called the Untitled Jessica Gao Project. G A O, and she's famous because she uh, was the one of the writers for Rick and Morty, the animated oh, yeah. series. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I think there's other stuff she's done, but that was the most recent thing where she's known for. And they gave her a shot, and she put together a family comedy uh, uh, with an all Asian cast, all Asian mm-hmm. cast, right? And that was that pilot was filmed and and shot, and none of the networks bit at that including the network it was it was made for so there's two opportunities post crazy rich asians for mm. another series and neither bit so it's like that's interesting yeah um and and a little bit sad because yeah the uh the another family comedy that would have been nice to see one you know um to to run on air just like as as uh uh fresh off the boat you know, makes its run. I, I don't know if it's going to have many seasons. It did get renewed, but the kids, the boys are getting older. So <laughs> we'll see well, how it runs. Yeah. And, and speaking to, and speaking to, you know, representation, there's a thing that every once in a while where I'm just sort of like, I mean, it's kind of weird, right? That we don't, you know, there are certain things that like, there's certain things, there are certain milestones that we haven't really had yet. Um, right. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird, right? That there isn't an Asian American superhero movie. That's right. kind of weird. Like, yeah, kind of feel like that should have happened. Um, yeah, and it should have happened because sometimes when I see, uh, like Asian American uh, trained um, martial artists and. 
things like that's like they they already have superpowers in their real life i mean mm-hmm. what's the next step you know you know that they can do because they could already do crazy acrobatic and uh, uh fight moves that no the average person cannot do yeah so you know it's like it would be logical to have the next one you know uh yeah, but, I, yeah. there's I, I know that there's one that's been like you know that uh that people have been trying to get made forever called chew um that uh that where like the main character uh, is an is an asian american homicide detective uh who has the ability to see the past of anything that he eats um and uh I've heard. I've never read it. I've heard it's great. I've heard it's a, a great story, um, and uh, you know, already in my head, it's like, okay, well, I, I think I know who would probably play this. So I think I know who would probably play that. That kind of a thing. Um, but I think it does connect to this idea of like, but why hasn't it's it's just it's weird to not be there yet, um, right? Right. You know, and and that that whole. I mean, as you as an uh, as an actor, and I'm not gonna like. I don't want to get too far into this because I don't want you to, you know. Uh, this 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 isn't where we we bear our souls and start naming names or anything like that. But I'm sure that you, as an actor, um, run across, uh, you know, for for a better for one of a better way to put it, roles you would rather not do. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you kind of have to like you, you have your own little like uh, Hollywood shuffle moment where it's like ah, uh, there's work at the post office, you know, like. You know, uh, do I have to like? Have you ever? Now, this is this is a big watershed moment, I think, for a, a lot of Asian American actors. Um, have you been asked to do? And I feel you will know what I'm talking about. The accent. I have. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny because as you were asking me, the, uh, doing the premise for this actual the the question, I, mm. I like, it was like my whole career uh, flashed before me. It's like where have I had to do it? Where have I had to do it? Even mm. just recently, and some actors. Uh, Asian actors out there won't do them anymore. They won't. Yeah. They won't audition for them. Yeah. I have done them. I still will do them. There's a little. There's a big irony in that because uh, I, I I I I got to hear it and see it. Um, I mean, or at least hear it uh, recently uh, for a voiceover job I had to tape. I had to do an accent, mm-hmm. and I I knew this when I as I've auditioned for my Asian accent is not very good. Mm. It's it's sort of like it's a little too much on the comical fake side. So to do, but I want to be do to be able to do an authentic native one, mm-hmm. and either I'll have to keep working on it or just not do them anymore. And one good thing that came out of it was I got the tape in with the accent. I listened to it, it's like oh, it sounds terrible in my eye in my ears. But then immediately after that, the casting is like, oh, it's supposed to be an Asian character. Uh, it's a Asian dragon, like a Chinese dragon, voicing a Chinese dragon. And mm. um, uh, they wanted the accent. And then immediately they changed their mind. No accent, no accent. But they want the actor to be Asian. So I don't know mm. what the point of that is. But right. yeah. But in, in terms of that, the irony is my Asian accent speaking English is not very good. The flip side of that is when they want me to speak Chinese, which mm-hmm. I'm second generation American, but first generation born in America. So mm-hmm. my parents would be first generation. I'd be second generation Americans. So second generation kids usually have much better grasp on the pair parents language unless they totally assimilated quickly like my brother and sister and I did. So right. we lose a lot of that. 
but I can do conversational <clears throat> Mandarin Chinese, but I have a very heavy American accent hmm. that I can't hear sometimes that other Chinese who are native can hear instantly. So there's a, there's like a double irony. It's like, oh, his, his accent when he speaks English, if he has to play a character who's not a native speaker, isn't that good. And when he has to play a native Chinese, it's not that good, right? Mm. And it's just like, I'm really trying to, and I'm willing to, you know, do that whole, let's squeeze this, you know, square peg into the round hole. We'll just keep twisting it. Just keep trying to do it, you know? Right. Um, I, I do secretly feel a little bit of shame and embarrassment having to do it because mm. as I'm hearing your voice and as people hear our voices, unless, unless you could tell, I can't even hear your Minneapolis voice. And I, I used to have a Cleveland yeah. accent. Um, I can't, we just, we don't sound Asian right now. Yeah. I don't think we do. And well, I'm from um, all over. Cause like I, I started in New Jersey. My Jersey accent is pretty good. Yeah. Um, I've, yeah. I've been all over too. And that's why it's like, how come I don't have, I picked up a Cleveland accent when we moved there. My sister was horrified. She's like, why are you talking yeah. like that? I'm like talking yeah. like what? You sound like you're from Cleveland. It's like, well, we live in Cleveland. And she's like, don't, don't do that accent. I'm like, I'm not doing an accent, but anyway, but yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, and I, I've been all over and, you know, we're, it, we're very, for lack of a better word, Americanized being mm-hmm. from all over. And yeah. yet they try to put us back into our, you're not from here. Are you thing a lot? Yeah. A lot. yeah. And I, you know, and it's funny cause I've also, I have my own relationship with the accent uh, and that, you know, like I've been asked to do it for plays or whatever. And I can't like, I can't do it, man. I've tried. My friends will laugh at I've, I've had three friends, three other actor friends trying to teach me how to all white, by the way, all white people yes. trying to teach me how to do the accent. And, and again, this is, this is, this is my, this is my Hollywood shuffle moment with three people. It's like, you know what guys, how about I just not do this one? Um, <laughs> because it is just a drag. When one of your friends is like, hey, I'm casting this show, and I was thinking of you for it. Oh, really? Is it because I'm so witty and irreverent? Well, it's the part of the Japanese businessman. Oh, dude, why would you do that to me? <laughs> like, why would you do that to me? I, I, I you know, but this is, this is also where it kind of comes in. This is a big thing. Speaking as a playwright, there's also a big discussion about whether or not you should write colorblind or specify uh, race and background in your shows, and there are pros and cons to each. Like the the natural inclination on my part is just to write colorblind because you never know who you're going to get. You know, right? Uh, to 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 write colorblind and just hope that there's some diversity in the cast there. But you know, with um, you know, with local groups, with community theater, you know, you you get what you get. You know. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you're just not, you know, it, the, the argument being, if you don't specifically write to race, the default will always be a white person. Um, it will always be somebody white who came in who, you know, maybe was as good, maybe wasn't. But it's like, if you put it in the script, this character has to be African-American. This character has to be Asian-American. That forces the producer to have to find somebody. But the other side of that sword is they'll look at that script and go, oh, I mean, I can't, I, we can't do this show. You know, there's, there's only one Asian American in this and he's already playing 12 people in this Saigon. You know, like you can't, you know, 
Yeah. You know what? It's uh, you just triggered something that just happened recently, just a really few weeks ago. I was reading. I was asked by one of the um, Asian um, uh, artist coalitions out here. Uh, it's called Cape. We can probably Google oh, that. C A P E. I am familiar with, with them. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I got to do a reading of a playwright. Or no, he was a screenplay of a, a feature film, um, or that it could also be turned into a series. And it was very clever. It's about it was for a, a YA story, young adult uh, or even younger a story, um, funny story comedy about a like a mystery caper at a middle school. So all the main characters were middle school people. I I got to read for the principal and and for just had a table read for them and for um, the uh, 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 grandpa, which I had fun with. But the problem was with afterwards, as we read the story, because the main premise is there's this one kid who's totally a knockoff, uh, like Sam Spade or, you know, those film noir. The style is film noir, but film noir in middle school. The writer is of Southeast Asian or Eastern Indian descent, right? The main character, he wrote as a generic kid but he named him um or he wanted him to be southeast asian or eastern indian he's the lead right he keeps switching back and forth into that total lingo of how those characters talk you know the humphrey bogart style film noir characters right afterwards the problem is exactly what you pointed out he didn't specifically he made that character so generic that it doesn't need to be played by a southeast asian kid or eastern indian kid so it will be cast white. We said that to him. It's like, you know, they're probably going to fight a white boy to play this character that you wrote and you're, that you want to be Southeast Asian. But unless you can find a way to make it important or demand that it be cast as Southeast Asian, he's going to be, they're going to find a white kid. Yeah. And then the other flip side of the sword is like, if you make it that way, maybe we won't do it. And it's easy for us to say, well, I guess the ball's in the court of the people who cast these things or the people who you know, direct these things. And, and we're starting to see a few more like uh, Asian American directors start to, you know, get a certain amount of like, I feel like if James Wan wanted to put something like that together, he probably could, you know, like, I feel like there are a few directors out there who, if they wanted to, oh, who was it that directed, directed Star Trek Beyond and uh, Better Luck Tomorrow? Um, Jeremy Lin, is that the director? Yeah. I think yeah. that is, yeah. yeah. Was that that basketball um, player? Who's there's a basketball, basketball player? player. Yeah, there's a basketball player, but there's also, yeah, but there's a director who, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, 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 such a bad film nerd about that. Um, but my point is, is that, like, I feel like we're getting to a point where, like, I think once we get to that point where, like, we have some directors who can actually, like, make that happen. But then there's also, but but there's an also another, there's another wrinkle in this as well. And that's, streaming in the internet and how bit by bit, little by little, um, I think Hollywood is starting to not become less relevant, but start to realize like they're not the only content provider in the country, you know, and, you know, I've said for years, someday a blockbuster film will be made by a couple of kids with a camcorder you know, and in their own home, on their own equipment. I said, someday that will happen. Some movies never see the light of day. Some are only heard about in rumors. One man will risk life and limb to find them all. 
That man is Big Slim McGroovy. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm here in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, visiting my dad, and I got another call um, from uh, from my good friend, Big Slim McGroovy. So I guess it's time for another forgotten movie with Big Slim McGroovy. Uh, this time uh, I got a, a Facebook message uh, from him. Turns out uh, he's in Denver. So here we are uh, in the back room of uh, uh, just the storage area of the Denver Center Theater Company. And uh, here I am. Uh, with Big Slim. How's it going, Big Slim? Great, great. I'm so glad uh, this worked out. Thanks for having me back. Oh, man, it's always good to, good to have you here. What, what, uh, what movie do you have for us today? Uh, well, I've got a, a little little scene, kind of controversial uh, film called Death at the Preschool. Oh, my Lord. When is that? That, that when is that from? Is that a? It's a Canadian film from uh, from the early eighties, nineteen eighty, I believe. Oh my God! So this would have been right in the pocket of that whole Friday the Thirteenth, My Bloody Valentine, uh, yeah, the you know just the, all the slashers. Right, right. The right. slasher films were very big at that time. Right, and this was, but this one was a little different because this one was actually based on uh, a novel by uh, Jan Leventhal, right? Absolutely, yeah. Jan, it was a bit of a departure uh, for her. It was um, dark, dark material. Yeah. Um, She's mainly known for writing books about feminist theory, and then she wrote this one, which was more of an Agatha Christie-ish, would you say it was an Agatha Christie kind of uh, murder mystery kind of a thing? I, I reject your hypothesis. Oh, okay. I think what Jan did was very different, mm-hmm. um, and nothing against uh, Ms. Christie, who was, was revered for her work, mm-hmm. but... Um, but uh, Jan took this in a whole new direction. It involved a rather surprising amount of grisly, grisly child murders. Oh, my lord! Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was oh. a risky choice. Certainly, it certainly different for her. It got her some notice. I'm not sure it was the right kind. Yeah. I mean, and Jan, uh, she was Jan Leventhal. I I never met the woman, but uh, I'm to understand she was a very much of a free spirited, nice person, nicest person you ever you ever met. But uh, she, uh, her death was interesting, though. Uh, like there was yeah. Well, I, interesting is kind of morbid, but sure. I mean. Of course, anybody that knew Jan knew how much she loved her animals. Oh, um, oh I mean, oh, I gosh. Do not, I do not like where this is going. Oh, she must have had 30 or 40 cats in that oh. house uh, when she died. But, you know, her favorite one, uh-huh. uh, Muffy, was always her favorite. And despite her fear of heights, kept climbing that tree. Oh. And, uh, oh, she climbed to that highest limb and she wailed and wailed. And oh, no. Jan was so worried. She finally went up after her. Uh-huh. Uh, she went up after her out to that that tallest branch way out there, and it just it, oh. it collapsed under her weight, oh, and no. uh, she fell oh. fell hit her head pretty hard on the birdbath, and oh. um, yeah, she never never woke up. Uh, oh. She was in a coma for quite a while after oh. that. Oh. Um, Muffy lived, which, oh, well, which was nice, but yeah. um, stayed right there with her by her bedside. But eventually, yeah, she just sort of. Just sort of drifted away. Wow! Wow! That's that's a that's a real shame. Also, I, I'm to understand that the police found a tape recorder with uh, with somebody making meowing sounds on it. I don't know what that's all about. I I don't I don't want to know. Um, mm-hmm. Frankly, I think it's it's a shame her love of cats. Um, it so defined her, and that that would play a role in her demise. Um, yeah, it's which just it's a sad sad legacy. And ironic, since she was deathly allergic. Huh. She was, and uh, yet somehow she let her love overcome that and like i say she had uh, dozens of them uh, that she gave a very nice home to wow so no last words for her i guess since it was a coma yeah i mean 
I'd like to. I've often imagined what they what they might have been. Oh, what, um, what, do you, what do you imagine? Well, you know, it, there's there's footage of her. They kept a a, a, a bedside vigil and. Oh. And every time, you know, you'd see that little blip on the monitor. Uh-huh. Um, I'd like to think it was it was her way of saying feed Muffy, because because that was important to her. Um, uh-huh. That Muffy, having been saved, would would be fed appropriately. Uh-huh. And so I really think she was trying uh, from from just beyond the realms of consciousness to convey that message. Wow. And Muffy's still going too. She is, uh, 23 years old now. Wow. Um, that is amazing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's a, it's, she's a hell of a cat. Hmm. So what is this movie about anyway? Death, death of the preschool. Um, I assume it's a teacher who gets murdered or, uh, no, no, it's actually, uh, it's the children themselves. Um, Oh no. Yeah. Uh, the, the teacher turns out to to be the slasher. Oh my goodness. But yeah, most, most of your victims were, were in that three to five year old range. It was, uh, it was it was controversial. Oh, wow. Has any of this movie ever seen the light of day? Well, there's a clip um, that you've probably seen on YouTube. Oh, boy. Um, okay. Yeah, it's, you know, school has, has let out, and mm-hmm. so the kids are enjoying some time at the beach, mm-hmm. um, and the the slasher approaches them there, and the kids, they're, they're the last surviving kids. So many of their classmates have been slaughtered, mm-hmm. and they, they take up arms in the only way they know how with their... They're, they're plastic pails and shovels. Oh, my God. This is that scene. Absolutely. Uh, oh. um, you know, the sandcastles surrounding them set the scene. And I never knew what this is from. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, they're pails and shovels. Um, unfortunately, proved proved no match. And, and they, too. Uh, they, too. But they went down fighting. Yeah. You got yeah, yeah. a lot of heart, those kids. Yeah. Because you, you can never really forget the scene where the teacher, like, beats the kid to death with another kid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. uh, it's it's too bad because those kids, I mean, they were they were best friends. And what a, what a way to go. Yeah. Oh, my my goodness. And, 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 you know, that's the thing is I never knew that this was from this movie. It's simply under YouTube under number 438. Yeah, yeah, like I say, it's one that a lot of people I think have kind of tried to distance themselves from given given the controversy. I don't even uh I don't even include it on my resume. Wow. Geez, so uh I mean I guess the answer to this is obvious why we've never even heard of this movie. Yeah, they just they, they couldn't get a rating, um mm-hmm. and they tried and tried, but the uh, with all the, the kids being um, you know, the victims, there was just too much a little too much child uh, dismemberment and, and gore um, mm. to get an appropriate rating. Like I say, I, w- I was in the movie and I don't even I don't even talk about it most of the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the thing is it also, you know, like, didn't it also have like a full frontal nude scene by the killer, Lynn Linda Sullivan? It, it did. There was a shocking amount of nudity uh, uh-huh. in this film. Just um, from her, really. Just from her. Yeah. yeah. Um, um you know, it's it's a scene kind of kind of gratuitous as I think about it. It's a it's a teacher's lounge scene at uh-huh. the preschool. Sure, uh, she was in there with uh, other actors you may be familiar with, uh, Mel Flexton. Oh, and geez, uh, look at him. And, well, you know, it's uh, I think the <laughs> Mel. Let's face it, if the if the money was right, he'd show up. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and uh, William Daniels, of course, this was before he'd go on to such great. Uh, fame in in night rider oh um, yeah 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 that's right because he was just p- pretty much playing hippies at this point in his life right he'd yeah. done that uh 1776 uh-huh. film um uh-huh. 
Um, yeah, and they played teachers, and it was uh, again a, a movie that already featured child dismemberment, and mm-hmm. uh, this was a scene they were they were doing uh, they were smoking the reefer there in the teacher's lounge, yeah, and yeah. and just kind of a little. Uh, teachers relaxing away from the kids, enjoying uh, a little downtime. Lynn, Lynn, Linda put on a little bit of a show for them. Yeah. But, uh, uh, very titillating scene. Didn't really, didn't really fit in the rest yeah. of the film. Lynn, Linda Shelton, who was you know mainly known for uh, the Ghost Who Couldn't See Me, which is right. one of the movies we've already discussed on this show. That's Absolutely. From like the nineteen fifties. How did, did I mean? Did she age well? Um, certainly not. She was. Oh, what a vision she was in the fifties. Uh, oh yeah. Um, that's what made her nudity, um, all the more shocking. Um, Mm -hmm. she just, I think people had that image of her in their mind. Um, I I found her lovely. I thought she was very nice, but, uh, but when that footage leaked, uh, some of, some of the public was not, was not kind in their assessment. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't, I mean, I know Sarah Silverman once said, you you never want somebody to call your nude scene brave, but this was (laughs) certainly brave. It, it was, um, you know, I, I, I applaud her for not, uh, covering up any of her scars but um but it just made some people uncomfortable yeah well and uh now you were telling me as i was heading down here that you are in this movie i am uh it's in um you can see my legs uh in that beach scene that mm-hmm. th- that clip that's on youtube i play a lifeguard wow. at the beach um and um I t- i'm not proud of it because i feel like my character um you know, would have done more. Hell, it was the, my job description to right. save kids, but I mean, they weren't drowning, they weren't in the water, mm-hmm. so I stayed there in my chair. I mean, I blew my whistle a lot. Mm-hmm. It did not deter the killer. Yeah, um, I, it never does. No, I, I mean, and I, I annoyed the director a bit. That was an improv on, on my part, but they gave me the whistle. Yeah. They gave me the whistle, and I thought that's that's what my character would do. Right. Now, now you're legally not allowed to say who directed this movie, because it went under Alan Smithy, as so many movies in this era did. Right, right. It's a director who went on to... to uh, um, redeem herself a bit, but um, oh, female director. It was, it was. Oh, uh, a lot of people did not expect this from her, and uh, I'd say I feel like she landed on her feet. But, um, but wow, yeah, this one was just a a misstep. It was so so beyond the pale of what the public was ready to accept at that time, but especially from her. Absolutely, so yeah. different from anything she'd done. Yeah, considering a lot of people refer to this person as the first lady of the stage. I'm okay. I, well, I'm yeah, sorry. I'm not supposed to say who this no, is. No, I would not say. Yeah, no. Anymore. At any at any rate. Well, thank you so much, and I'm dying to check this movie out. Obviously, there's not much I can say about it, uh, just as of yet. But thank oh, you. it really has to be seen to be believed. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Big Slim, for uh, for inviting me down. I don't know how you keep finding me. Oh well, you know you're you're on my radar. Uh, okay. Well, uh, we'll catch you all next week. All right, thank you. Big Slim may be a fictitious character created by Alan J. Hart and Rob Matsushita. And that's it for this episode of The Knife Drop. Special thanks to all of our friends, Buck Hakes, Christopher Chen, and Alan Hart. Uh, extra special thanks to Jan Levinthal, who gave us the title for this episode's Forgotten Movie. Extra, extra special thanks to Michael Kedor and Barrett Evans with Mill Creek Entertainment for making all of this happen. The Knife Drop is brought to you by Mill Creek Entertainment and the Movie Spree streaming service. See you next time, kids.